I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. It was so hot that you could smell the heat. The heat is creating an extra hurdle. Do I pay for air conditioning or do I pay for my rent? Heat affects so many aspects of our lives, especially when it comes to health and when it comes to reproductive health. How extreme heat can affect contraception. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... K-pop's plastic problem. Some fans will purchase dozens to hundreds of the same album. How fans are pressuring the industry to change its tune. A not-so-bitter pill. It's an oral compound that you can take at home. The first oral pill to treat postpartum depression. And a brush with the law. How many people have been ripped off? The biggest art fraud in world history, right here in Canada. All today on Day 6, the Forging Ahead edition. Extreme weather and brutally high temperatures are making their way across the globe. Nearly a third of the U.S. population now under heat alerts. For a staggering 80 million Americans from California to South Florida. It will be the second extreme heat wave to hit southern Europe this year, intensified by global warming. Unprecedented heat waves sweeping across the world have introduced a number of new challenges. One of those new hurdles is the threat of heat damage to contraceptives like condoms, pregnancy tests, and emergency contraceptive pills. It's especially challenging in the U.S., where it has complicated the work of abortion fund organizations providing contraceptive supplies in states that have banned abortions. Shafali Luthra is a health reporter for the 19th News. She spoke with reproductive health law experts and abortion fund organizers about how extreme heat has complicated access to effective contraceptives. Shafali, welcome to Day 6. Thanks so much for having me. Just how hot is too hot for the contraceptives that you looked at? It is increasingly too hot just in everyday temperatures to, to safely store condoms, to store emergency contraception, to store even pregnancy tests, once you get consistently hotter than 86 degrees Fahrenheit, that is too much for condoms to not experience any kind of damage. It is too much to store plan B pills. And once we get past 122 degrees, then you really can't trust that the condoms you have are safe to use and will in fact protect you from pregnancy, from STIs, from all the things from which they are supposed to protect you. And what's important about this is these are temperatures that are a reality for many people, especially in the American South, where it just has been consistently north of 100 degrees every day for longer than you can count. Now, you mentioned uh, 86 Fahrenheit. That's 30 degrees Celsius. That that does not seem very high. You're telling me that pregnancy tests, uh, pills become ineffective once you get to those temperatures? 
And what's important is most of these are usually kept at room temperature, right? So inside your home, inside a storage facility, et cetera, a place that is climate controlled. And so as long as these supplies are being kept at sort of the, the temperature that we would normally be operating in, that's completely fine. Where the risks really get in is where things are being sent in the mail and when people lose power and lose access to things like air conditioning, to heat in the winter, those sorts of climate control mechanisms. And that is when the real concern about exposure, about quality degradation becomes more meaningful. Hmm. Now, before we get into the details here, what exactly are abortion funds doing in states where abortion has been banned? This, I think, is really important. The lack of legal abortion has put a lot of pressure on the need for family planning supplies. And we have abortion funds, to be clear, helping people leave their states to access care in places where abortion remains legal. But many of them have also pivoted to disseminating contraceptive supplies, making sure people do have access to pregnancy tests, to thermometers, to condoms, to plan B pills, to all the things that are not a substitute for abortion, but that people hope will help people know if their abortions have worked, if they are pregnant, and will keep them from becoming pregnant. This has just become a really, always been a critical piece, but even more so when the implications of an unintended, unwanted pregnancy are that much greater. How are they doing this distribution? It varies from organization to organization. Some mail them to people if they request access to emergency contraception. Some of them will have drop-off sites or pickup sites. Some, like the Lilith Fund, a major abortion fund in Texas, actually send these kits to clinics outside the state where they know people are traveling. And when people get to the clinic, they are given this sort of care package from home. And that contains things like pregnancy tests, emergency contraception, and condoms. Now, you spoke to some of these organizations like the Lilith Fund. Uh, These are abortion fund organizers in Texas and other states who distribute emergency contraceptives. How is the heat affecting their work? It's something that they never expected to have to plan for in this way, but that they absolutely must. And the critical example that I think of is the Lilith Fund lost $3,500 worth of pregnancy tests, thermometers, and condoms because The storage facility in San Antonio, where they kept those supplies, lost air conditioning temporarily. And so they had to raise money from their supporters to replace those items that, you know, meant they took longer to distribute their abortion care packages, sort of as they described them. And longer term, they have to be factoring in what will we lose to heat? What could we lose in the winter if we lose, you know, climate control in that time of year? And how will we be raising more money and spending more money because of the different climate in which we live? I would imagine, though, that, that you know, here we're talking about storage facilities, but I would imagine that you have the same troubles at the endpoints when people receive these, these materials as well. And the real concern is for people who don't have access to stable climate control, people who maybe don't have the money to pay for air conditioning. And these often are the same people who are most affected by abortion bans and who rely on support from abortion funds, right? People with lower incomes who live further out in rural parts of the state, in hotter parts of the state, and everything there is just at a heightened risk. We know that people with lower incomes, often people of color, experience greater heat burdens. And this is just one more way in which that happens. You mentioned this this term, the, the heat burden. Tell me more about that. What is that? 
What's striking is that heat affects so many aspects of our lives, especially when it comes to health and when it comes to reproductive health. Pregnancy is more difficult when it is very hot. People get dehydrated more easily. They require more water. People are more susceptible to things like smoke damage, right? To air quality is more dangerous if you are pregnant. And what we see is that people who are pregnant will suffer more when they live in hotter areas and don't have access to climate control. People who are trying to access abortions and have to travel further as a result of abortion bans will spend more time in cars whose air conditionings may not be able to survive the hours-long, sometimes days-long journeys to get to the next legal abortion clinic. What that means is people's lives are just markedly different and their healths are markedly worse because they are exposed to greater heat. What then do you think is at stake for reproductive health care is, you know, we're seeing more and more extreme weather events and, and this continues to happen. I think what we have to understand is that all of these things are related. The burden of living in a world shaped by climate change in summers that are hotter, in winters that are colder, in, you know, freak incidents that used to be considered once in a lifetime and that are once regular, those intersect with what we are experiencing when it comes to less access to reproductive health care, whether that means financial burdens in affording family planning services, whether that means not being able to get a legal abortion in your state and spending more money, traveling further, putting yourself at greater risk to access care. These are inherently connected and we have to think of them as such. Now, you've been speaking about this issue with reproductive law experts and scholars. What are they telling you about how this can be addressed at the policy level? It's really difficult. I think no one has a suggestion that there is a single silver bullet way to fix climate change, but many of them are concerned about the quality of, especially in Texas, the power grid there has already failed in a winter storm in 2021. On a policy level, when it comes to abortion access, I mean, the real challenge is that all of these stakes become greater when abortion is banned. There's just no real way around that. And that's something that we have to take into account as a real policy choice lawmakers have made. Shivali, before before we let you go, I want you to paint a picture for me for what it's like for a person trying to access contraception in these states. What kinds of stories are you hearing on the ground? I have thought a lot about a young woman I spoke to in South Texas near the border, and she, for one thing, never actually learned in school about birth control. Everything she has since learned about condoms, emergency contraception, about abortion, she learned on her own and through friends. She works um, a low-wage job and is in school. Her parents don't support premarital sex, and so access to birth control is something that she has to raise the money for and find on her own. That means, you know, saving money from your extra shifts when you are young and vulnerable. It means finding stores that carry it. And it means doing all of that work in, in a world that is hotter and hotter, especially in an area like South Texas, where it just, it affects your quality of life and your basic health to function. Well, Shafali, thank you for sharing that story with us. And thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. Shafali Luthra is a health reporter for the 19th News. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. All line is burnt to crisp, and it's 
It's like an apocalypse. The Hawaiian island of Maui is reeling from this week's devastating wildfires. More than 80 people have been killed by the fires that leveled hundreds of buildings and prompted the evacuation of over 11,000 people. The historic town of Lahaina suffered catastrophic losses with entire blocks burned down. Some residents were forced to flee into the ocean to escape the flames and were later rescued by the Coast Guard. The Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization says the average area burned by wildfires in the state has increased nearly 400% over the last century. And. This week, Global Affairs Canada said it had uncovered a disinformation campaign that targeted Conservative MP Michael Chong. In May, false narratives about Chong's politics and family history were spread using the Chinese social media platform WeChat. Earlier this year, a Chinese diplomat was expelled from Canada for allegedly targeting Chong and his family in an information gathering operation. Global Affairs says it's highly probable that China played a role in spreading the disinformation against Chong, but that a firm link has not been established. This comes as opposition parties are calling on the Liberal government to launch an investigation into foreign interference in Canadian elections and institutions. Still to come on day six, K-pop's problem with plastic waste and what fans are doing to stop it. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. Is this really happening again? Well, you know, who are we without a homicide? The Arconia Trio is back for another murder mystery-filled season of Only Murders in the Building. The show stars Steve Martin, Selena Gomez, and Martin Short. They play a trio of New Yorkers united by a shared love of their gorgeous historic Upper West Side apartment building and also true crime podcasts. This time around, they're joined by Paul Rudd and the queen of Hollywood herself, Meryl Streep. Oh my God, it's me! Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, it's me. Only Murders in the Building has received acclaim from television critics and audiences alike, but it's been a real treat for true crime fans in love with a show that simultaneously spoofs and pays homage to podcasts like Serial and shows like The Jinx. That's thanks in no small part to an eerie, evocative and catchy soundtrack by Siddhartha Kosla, also known for his work on This Is Us. Kosla spoke with Day6 in June about composing the soundtrack for Only Murders in the Building, as well as the show's incredible earworm opening theme. So if I get on like my piano for a second. The funniest the score ever gets is the elevator theme, which is the... Hi, my name is Siddhartha Kosla, and I'm the composer for Only Murders in the Building. Well, I found inspiration for scoring Only Murders in the Building really from the amazing people that created the show and brought me into the fold in the first place. So what we found in our conversations was that at the core of this, it's three people that are like incredibly lonely and are also looking for connection. sort of happy version but if I wanted to 
take the same thing, but... You know, that's sad. When I approached the score, I had that in the back of my mind. So, you know, when I wrote the main theme for the show, if I sing it like that, it sounds pretty lonely. But then if I sort of dress it up with a bouncy piano and paint buckets from Home Depot, you know, which is what it is on the main title, it all of a sudden feels fun and exciting and quirky and funny too. I think the key for me was what is our main theme and how malleable is that theme? It's sort of like the core of the, of, the, of the main title is this jaunty little like bouncy piano, right? So it's the... And what I basically did was like, when I when I wrote that, I I stuck pieces of paper and felt and all sorts of stuff inside the strings of my piano, and I played that. So that was like the starting point for me, in terms of what my chord changes were, and and then I had a melody that was like. And I sang that, and that became the chorus. So the. Right, that was a sort of starting point for me. Then I have like the kitchen sink on it. We have a full orchestra. There's a vocal sample in the Mellotron that's doubling my voice. And, and so that creates that cool texture. I have a xylophone, James McAllister, great drummer. He went out and got some paint buckets and he made a drum set out of them. The idea of the Home Depot buckets on the score came from conversations about socioeconomic diversity of the city and realizing that in a single block of New York City, you can see abject poverty uh, on one side and, and vast amounts of wealth at the same time. And there's this constant push and pull in the city, this dichotomy that you feel between rich and poor, and we wanted to reflect that in the music in some way. My uh, assistant at the time, Alan, um, who's now a producer with me in my company, had this really wonderful idea to say, hey, what if we put Home Depot paint buckets on the score as if it were a homeless person in the subway playing buckets? And I thought that was such an in interesting idea, and, it, and it, it achieved, how do we make the score more New York? and how do we, ex we express that diversity in the music. There was a logistical issue we had with season one, and that being the pandemic. And I could not record all my musicians together in a room at the same time. And so season two's sound to me got bigger and more expansive. And now season three, most of season three is a lot of brand new themes, and I can't tell you how excited I am for audiences to, to watch 
and hear it. There's a lot of just, it's just awesome. Siddhartha Kosla is the composer behind Only Murders in the Building. He spoke with Day 6 in June. Only Murders in the Building's third season premiered earlier this week on Tuesday, August the 8th. It's being hailed as a potential breakthrough for something millions of new moms experience. Postpartum depression is among the most common complications of childbirth. The first ever pill to treat postpartum depression. Zoo ran alone. Brand name, Zuzave. It's a promising new drug that can treat postpartum depression. One pill a day for just two weeks. That's unlike traditional antidepressants, which can take weeks to even begin to work. Or the only other postpartum depression-specific drug, which is administered by an IV drip over 60 hours. The drug was recently approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, but it's not yet available in Canada. Dr. Tong V. Nguyen is a reproductive psychiatrist and a co-founder of the Quebec Alliance for Perinatal Health. She says importing Zuzave and similar drugs is a good idea, but we also need to change the way we think about postnatal mental health. Dr. Nguyen, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. What is Zuzave? Zuzave is a new medication, actually. The generic name is Zoranolone, and it's a very interesting compound, actually, that's based on a molecule that's made endogenously, meaning in our body, by the adrenal glands, and it's also made in certain regions of the brain. So in a way, it's a natural molecule, if you will. It was first approved in 2019 as an IV medication for postpartum depression called brixenolone. And now finally now, in August 2023, it was approved in the States as an oral compound. Why this makes such a big difference is because the IV version, despite its superior efficacy compared to standard antidepressant and psychotherapy treatment, had to be administered during 60 hours or 2.5 days in order to be effective and also required during that whole time monitoring by healthcare professional versus Zerzave, which is an oral compound that you can take at home every day for two weeks from the date of your delivery onward. It's been described as game-changing, is it? I understand why we talk about it as game-changer because it's actually the first time that a hormonal treatment is being approved in psychiatry. Now, in terms of using Zerzafe, what I understood as in terms of the latest studies is that it still needs to be used with treatment as usual. So it would be used in addition to traditional antidepressant and psychotherapy treatments. And when used in that combination, seems to be superior to treatment as usual. So I just don't want maybe people to get the sense that really any pharmacological treatment is better than really this commitment to working on yourself, like healthy lifestyle, healthy exercise, regular psychotherapy, and if you need it, regular antidepressant treatment as well. Can it be used to treat regular depression? There is indication that it may be effective for major depression outside of the postpartum area, outside of the perinatal period. There is also some indication that it could be beneficial for post-traumatic stress disorder, for premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and also possibly for perimenopausal mood and anxiety disorders. But we don't have enough evidence yet to, it would be off-label to use the drug for those purposes at this point. What's the distinction then between postpartum depression and regular depression? There are some elements that overlap, for sure. For example, the, the lack of pleasure, the kind of flatness of the affect, sadness sometimes, but also the irritability. 
feelings of hopelessness, lack of concentration, changes in appetite, changes in sleep, all of that are really similar between major depression and postpartum depression. The difference with postpartum depression is that one, oftentimes you can kind of trace back more or less the moment during pregnancy or even during preconception when the mother may have started to experience symptoms and sometimes it has been missed by the healthcare professionals, sometimes it has been flagged, but then because there's not an efficient way to refer people for mental health treatments, unfortunately, sometimes you end up with a more severe postpartum depression. The other difference is that it impacts the whole family, really, the attachment to the baby, the relationship with the baby, the relationship between the mother and her partner, and the relationship as well between the partner and the baby. So that's why it really can have a lot of costly impacts in the long term. Just broadly speaking, right now in Canada, what are the treatments that are available for people living through postpartum depression? It's really psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy or a combination of the two. And I really think that for the majority of people, they could be very beneficial or beneficial enough for them to recover function at least. However, we're still struggling with having kind of a systematic, as I've mentioned, screening and referral system so that people get access to help quickly. Now I'm being told that where I practice in Quebec, that there's a long wait list for a lot of perinatal mental health professionals, and that can be very detrimental. Do we have a sense for when Zorzave might be available in Canada? I'm not very optimistic, just because since 2019, there have been talks with Health Canada about the IV version, mm. which in fact is actually much more effective than the TO version. It's just that it's costly. But we haven't made any progress in terms of having it approved here in Canada. I think it would have to be a mix of public-private care, maybe, with uh, some private insurance companies starting to cover the medication, maybe. But I think it's going to be a matter of years, unfortunately. Now, there's this research out of the UK that looked at the lifetime costs of maternal mental health. Can you tell us about what that study found? They found wide range and lifespan impact of maternal mental health on not only maternal productivity and maternal physical and mental health going forward for the rest of the lifespan, but also for the baby, because when you have depressive and anxious symptoms during pregnancy, you have the higher risk of giving birth early, premature delivery, low birth weight, different developmental issues, uh, delays in speech in motor milestones, for example. And all of that accumulates over a lifetime so that the costs are really much larger than we would expect. So I'm, what I'm hoping is that policymakers, decision makers, would take into account that sort of calculation when they are looking at whether to approve something that can look costly like Brixenolum IV or Zuzuve, because if you just look at the cost without looking at how much this was saved for our entire society, then you're missing a big part of the picture. What about paternal mental health? It's been several years now that studies keep coming up. Of course, we have unfortunately less studies on fathers and mothers, but still, uh, we do have enough studies to say that, for example, in North American countries compared to less developed countries, like my country of origin, Vietnam, you actually have more rates of depression in the father. And it can be up to one in four fathers in the States, for example, that have postpartum depression. Now, there are different theories that are um, trying to explain that. One of the theories is that as fathers are expected to be more involved in childcare and just overall responsibility for the child, that 
also that they're more willing to be involved, then that kind of role and mental load and emotional load also falls on their shoulders. And that maybe that's why in North American countries, particularly the U.S., we have such high rates of maternal depression. Provincially, things are a little bit different, that that you can have different situations between different provinces. Can you speak to that? This is my personal opinion, which I think is shared by some of my colleagues. Hopefully no one will fault me for this, but for example, I find that in Ontario and in BC, there are really great centers of prenatal mental health. There are lots of prenatal mental health professionals working together, and there's a little bit more support from the government in terms of making sure that all families with prenatal mental health issues are taken care of. Other provinces, unfortunately, I'm just going to talk about my province so that I'm not there. That's in, in Quebec, you mean? In Quebec. And so you just refer kind of to the general adult mental health care system. But I think that this particular period of a woman's life and of a family's life really is important and that we have to intervene as early as possible. So I hope that in our province eventually there will be a, a system that is really specific to being adult mental health. Well, Dr. Nguyen, thank you for speaking with me about this. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Tong V. Nguyen is a reproductive psychiatrist and a co-founder of the Quebec Alliance for Perinatal Health. Still to come on day six, how the keyboardist from the Bare Naked Ladies accidentally helped uncover what might be the biggest art fraud in history. I'm Manjula Salvaraja, in for Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcast, And at cbc.ca slash day6. Hey, friends. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. If you're not a diehard music collector, it's probably been a while since you've bought a CD or a record or a cassette tape, unless you're a K-pop fan. For K-pop fans, physical artifacts made by the bands they love are often collector's items, as well as powerful tools to influence the industry. But as the CBC's Samantha Louis tells us, that has environmental consequences. Ashley flips through a photo album inside a bubble tea shop in downtown Toronto. The pictures inside are not family. They're not happy memories with friends from her native France. What's inside instead are exclusive photo cards of her favorite K-pop idols. This is a little collecting book um, that I got. So I just have like a bunch of like um, G-Idol, Twice, Seventeen, P1 Harmony, uh, just my favorite favorite photo cards overall. Seeing pretty people makes me happy, so... (laughs) These photo cards are collectible items, kind of like baseball and hockey cards. They're often packaged with CDs and albums, but not every album features the same photos, making some rarer than others. Another fan, Joanna Lee, says these cards are just part of the K-pop experience. Just like buying an album for me as well, like the moment like you get it and like the serotonin just for like that that minute where you like find out who you pulled or whatever it's just so like 
feels good. You know, that's why we're gonna. You're biased. Especially if you pull your bias, then it just feels like, oh my god. <laughs> I can totally relate as a K-pop fan myself. I own two different versions of Seventeen's latest extended play titled FML, each with different photo cards. Though in my defense, one of them is autographed. That project set a record for becoming the biggest selling K-pop album in South Korean history at 6.2 million copies. But shortly after Seventeen released its album in April, Dozens of the group's CDs were found in the trash. Images of those albums circulated across social media. And Seventeen isn't the only group that's had that happen. Photos of discarded Stray Kids and NCT albums have also gone viral in the past. That's led me to wonder, can being a K-pop fan be bad for the environment? Yeah, so um, those bags and bags of uh, K-pop albums being thrown in the trash is, well, because the K-pop industry promotes bulk buying and spending, uh, especially around fan sign events and photo cards. Aram Zhang is an assistant professor of Korean culture at Arizona State University. Zhang says album purchases are essential to a K-pop idol's success when it comes to award shows and getting on music charts. Fans today are very smart and they know how the industry works. So they recognize that their favorite idols are also, you know, product of this neoliberal capitalist industry. These charts kind of become a criteria in measuring the idol's popularity and the fandom's power. And so K-pop fans want their idols to do well so that the company will continue to promote these idols, um, you know, create new albums, uh, do concerts in Korea and also in other countries. As a longtime K-pop fan herself, Zhang has participated in 25 fan signs. She says some fans will purchase dozens to hundreds of the same album to increase their chances of winning. And it's a dilemma she struggles with too. It's wastefulness and it hurts the environment. But also I'm kind of at a loss because there's only so much fans can do. Like, I do think there should be a collective way for both the industry and fans to work together to find, find a more environmentally sustainable way because, like I said, fans can only do so much and also I understand when fans do not want to deprive themselves of the joy, the happiness of uh, going to a fan event or, or meeting their idol. Some major K-pop agencies have since vowed to make efforts to reduce its environmental impact in recent years. Hello, I'm JY Park, the founder and chairman of JYP Entertainment. Today, I'm standing here in front of you to share with you the true passion of our company. JYP Entertainment is the company behind acts like Twice and Stray Kids. In 2021, it vowed to reduce waste associated with physical album purchases by digitally distributing songs, behind-the-scenes content, lyric and photo books instead. Hybe, the company behind BTS, said in a statement that it has started printing photocards and albums 
using more sustainable materials like biodegradable plastic and soy-based ink. BTS rapper J-Hope also released his 2022 album Jack in the Box digitally. Digital albums come in minimal packaging with photo cards inside. Those who want to listen to the music can scan a QR code inside the album. But some fans say these efforts do not go far enough. Uh, I have seen a lot of uh, efforts, but I've also seen some uh, greenwashing. I think that entertainment companies should do what they can change. Dion Lee is a K-pop fan and a campaigner with the climate action group K-Pop for Planet. K-Pop for Planet launched in 2021 as a platform for fans to raise concerns about climate change. It was too heartbreaking to see that all those albums went into the trash can and became a waste. It's because the albums are work from idols and or staffs of entertainment companies, but entertainment companies made K-pop fans to buy the same album multiple times, so their artwork became the trash. So that was the most heartbreaking point. So to stop it, I think the entertainment companies should take some action. Since its launch, K-pop for Planet has led a campaign called No K-pop on a Dead Planet. That campaign is to ask entertainment companies to be more sustainable in its practices. Lee says one solution to plastic waste is introducing something known as the Green Album Option. The Green Album Option means that K-pop fans can choose how many albums they are going to receive when they buy the albums. So like even though they buy 30 albums and actually pay for the same price, but like choose to receive only three albums to reduce the physical album waste. K-Pop for Planet has also led a campaign on streaming music and the impact that has on the environment. Streaming has become popular in K-Pop fan culture as it also helps boost artists on music charts and award shows. Streaming companies like Spotify, Apple Music, and the Korean platform Melon rely on data centers which require large amounts of energy to operate. As a result, K-Pop for Planet says streaming music for more than five hours can emit more carbon emissions than one physical album. According to Kyle Devine, calculating the toll streaming has on the environment is a challenge because internet infrastructure is always changing. Devine is a professor in the Department of Musicology and the School of Environmental Humanities at the University of Oslo. He is also the author of the book, Decomposed, The Political Ecology of Music. He adds that streaming platforms have also shifted away from traditional data centers to programs like Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services. Most of these streaming services actually are not responsible directly for their own for the emissions and energy usage that comes from storing and transmitting these music files. A lot of them, most of them, I think, since around 2018, basically subcontract that work to the large one, large services like Amazon Web Services and Google and things like this. And with that, they also, in a way, subcontract, you know, their responsibility for uh, the emissions of all of this, right? So they kind of wipe their hands of it. At the same time, Divine pushes back on the idea that we should be limiting our music consumption. 
It isn't buying your next record on bioplastic or, you know, stop streaming less or whatever. People can do those things and I'm fine with all of that. Um, but the most important thing that music fans can do is to organize these ways in these ways against the sort of fundamental problem. And that means doing politically active and radical social things. The encouraging thing is that music has always played really important roles in those situations. As a K-pop fan herself, Dion Lee says K-pop for Planet is not here to blame fans for their actions, but to ask the K-pop industry to do better. I understand how fans feel. Like, they always feel guilty by doing uh, mass streaming and buying a bulk of albums, but I want to say that uh, it's not the K-pop fans' fault. Like, the, indus the industry are the problems and they have to be changed. Back inside the Bubble Tea Cafe, Ash Ladeau says she'd like to find a way to continue being a fan without contributing quite so much plastic waste. No, I kind of do feel some kind of responsibility about that because um, we as K-pop fans have like an incredible amount of pollution. Like just look at us collectors, we have like these little like collect books, it's just so much plastic. We can buy less of course, but then we still want to because like it's still K-pop, you know. For Day 6, I'm Samantha Louie. Samantha Louie is a producer with CBC Radio's Metro Morning and Day 6 official K-pop correspondent. These are not small victimless crimes. These are people that took advantage of one man's legacy in order to turn a profit for themselves. It's being called the biggest art fraud in world history. Last March, Ontario Provincial Police charged eight people in connection with a forgery ring that produced as many as 6,000 fake paintings. The forged artwork imitates the style of 20th century painter Norval Morisot. Morisot is also known as Copper Thunderbird. He was a groundbreaking Anishinaabe artist whose paintings are admired worldwide. Morisot founded the Woodland School, a style of bold lines and vibrantly colored interpretations of ancient Anishinaabe legends. For decades, forgeries of his work were sold to unsuspecting art collectors for thousands of dollars each. Among them, Canadian musician Kevin Hearn. That's when I went into the gallery. <laughs> I bought my painting. Little did I know, the spider web was around me. Kevin Hearn is known for his solo work and as a member of the band Bare Naked Ladies. In 2005, he bought what he believed to be a genuine Morisot, only to find out that it was likely a fake. In 2017, Hearn sued the Toronto gallery that sold him the painting. And after years of legal back and forth, the Ontario Court of Appeal eventually sided with Hearn. Then in 2019, Hearn was featured in a documentary called There Are No Fakes, it explored the feud between art collectors over Morisot's work and ended up being instrumental in the charges laid earlier this March. Kevin Hearn spoke to Brent Bambury soon after. Good morning, Brent. You bought the painting Spirit Energy of Mother Earth, which you thought was a genuine Morisot back in 2005. What initially drew you to the work of Norval Morisot? I remember first seeing his work on the cover of a Bruce Coburn record called Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws back yeah. when I was a teenager. 
And I just always loved his work when it would, when I would by chance see it somewhere, I was like, oh, there's that artist. I love his work. And, you know, after the band had some success, I, I bought a new home and I thought, I wonder if I could afford one of his paintings. And I sure would love to have some of his work in my home. Were you aware that people were suspecting that some Morisos in circulation were not real at that time? Uh, yes, I had heard some rumblings, and that's why I went to a, an actual art gallery. And when I went to the gallery, uh, Joan McLeod was very much, uh, you know, a nice guy and presented himself as someone who knew Morisot, who loved Morisot, who uh, represented some of Morisot's sons as artists. And uh, it just felt like a, a safe place to buy a painting. But you launched a lawsuit against the gallery that sold you that painting. And that action brought you in to this story of this sprawling network that's alleged to be behind the biggest art fraud ever. When did you realize the scale of what you'd been drawn into? You know, I, I did go to see Joe McLeod and, and, you know, I wanted to investigate the painting with him. Let's really look at the history of it together and where did you get it? And, you know, he wasn't interested in doing that. And he said, Kevin, I, I can't give you your money back either for the painting, because if I did that, it would set off a chain of events that would result in the closing of my gallery. Mm. And so I left the gallery and, you know, I thought, first of all, I, I think I've been ripped off. And then I thought, I'm, how many people have been ripped off? And then I thought of the artist himself and how, how it was an injustice to him. And so on that basis, I, I started my lawsuit, which led to years of investigating. And the more I learned, the more I realized how many people had been hurt and used and victimized uh, in this story. And then I couldn't stop. Like, I, I just had to keep going. And even though I had no idea of the enormity of what I was getting into, you know, I thought I was just suing one man at a gallery, but I was actually up against a whole organized network of people conspiring to not let me speak the truth or prove the truth. I guess one shot into that garrison could cause all of the walls to fall. I mean, that's that's the, the title of the documentary, There Are No Fakes, comes from this idea that if there's one fake, there's probably many, many fakes. And then the entire edifice comes down. But did the scale of the operation make you more determined or did it push you back? No, I became more determined and, and not so much by the scale of what I was up against, but by the damage I, I'd seen done to people connected to it. And there was a real core group of us that worked together for years, uh, knowing what the truth was. And I, I just had the means, you know, the patience and the financial means to continue the fight. And I remember at one point, uh, a lawyer on the other side said, Kevin, are you sure this is worth it uh, for a $20,000 painting? And I said, it's not about the money. This is about the principle. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to what you said about you understood that there was damage being done to, to so many people. Talk to me about the damage. Who do you think was hurt by this most? 
Well, you have people uh, like me who, you know, innocently want to buy a piece of art. You have Norval Morisot and his legacy being damaged by this uh, fraudulent activity. And you, you have all the other victims, uh, you know, indigenous artists who were hired to paint. Uh, there's an artist named Tim Tate who submitted an affidavit in my trial that said he was hired to paint in the style of Morisot and asked specifically not to sign the paintings. And so you have people like that who were sort of drawn into this, this bad business. But the documentary about your lawsuit motivated the investigation that led to the charges that we're seeing now. How did you feel when you heard about the charges that were laid in connection with the forgery ring this month? The film is largely based on the evidence uh, and facts that Jonathan Summers and I and our team uh, uncovered uh, during years and years and years of research. And I remember I was on tour and just after sound check, sitting at a table and my phone rang and it was uh, Detective uh, Jason Ryback saying he'd like to see the film. And shortly thereafter, the investigation began. And it took a lot of patience to wait for those results and to finally hear that they actually did something. Uh, I felt uh, very grateful. And we're talking about thousands thousands of allegedly forged paintings here. How could something of this scale involving allegedly this many people go on for as long as it did? Uh, that's what I wondered for years, Brent. <laughs> and I wondered why, you know, it was it was up to the keyboardist from a band to, to do this. <laughs> but mm. uh, I think there's a misconception that, that art crime is a victimless crime. And... Um, People aren't getting hurt by it, but it is a very um, present and potent injustice. Hmm. And when you see, it's not just you know people that have money that are buying art who are being victims, but there's a whole dark underbelly that you you learn about people being exploited. People, it goes beyond art fraud. If you watch the film, it 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 goes right into issues of, of colonization and issues of racism, systemic racism. And everywhere I turned during this journey, it was there. Kevin, if you had the chance to buy another Morso, a real one, would you do it? Well, I, I actually do have a couple other ones. Um, I, I will say that um, during my trial and afterwards, I I was turned off of art in general. I wasn't going into art museums anymore for a few years. And uh, I just had this sort of sour feeling about it, whereas it was something that used to bring me a lot of joy. Um, but it, it definitely changed the way I, I look at art and the art world. And what about when you look at the Morisos, when you look at them now, can you unsee all of the exploitation and greed that's there in the background? I'm afraid I can't. Uh, that's really sad. Mm-hmm. Kevin Hearn, how do you feel about the fact that this is at some kind of a conclusion now? Well, um, the matter's still in the courts, but I, f I'm, I feel we're in a better place, and I feel that we're on the pathway to the truth. 
Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Kevin Hearn is a Canadian musician. He spoke to Brent Bambury in March. Rift from the headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. That was Joan Armatrading with Eating the Bear, Ludacris with Stand Up, and The Killers with Human. Rosemary Mooney of Halifax, Nova Scotia guessed the headline we were looking for. Chinese zoo denies its sun bears are humans dressed in costumes. Rosemary, congratulations. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now here's this week's clue. story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer, put rift from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. That's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Samir Chabra, Mickey Edwards, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and Pedro Sanchez with technical support from Austin Pomeroy. Our intern is Chris Slade. Our digital producer is Philip Drost. Our senior producer this week is Julian Uzielli. I'm Manjula Salvaraja in for Brent Babbery. Thanks for listening to Day 6. Pretty people makes me happy. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.